This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And... The Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. Our chief critic, Rachel Lawson. Hello. And joining us once again, our Hollywood editor, Hilary Busis. Thanks for having me. I hope you're keeping Mike's seat nice and warm as he recovers from his well-documented travel nightmares from Monday uh, <laughs> and presumably is doing other things as well. Yes, um, yes. I didn't delay his plans so that I could be on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Your takeover is almost complete. You finally got uh, that weather machine up and running. <laughs> <laughs> Soon I will finally block out the sun. So as we talked about uh, last week and the week before, it's really a busy time for television and kind of a quiet time for movies. And with Game of Thrones up and running and all of the Game of Thrones info you need on the Still Watching podcast... We were kind of going to use this week's episode to do a little bit of a look in the past, as much of the internet has been doing, because it's been 20 years since 1999, which has been uh, regarded in years since as one of the best years for Hollywood movies and a kind of a groundbreaking one. And has been ho- there's been a lot of retrospectives about it uh, on the internet lately. So we'll get going there. But first, something that does tie into 1999 and every year, because there's a new Star Wars trailer and every year brings new Star Wars news. Um, there was a Star Wars celebration conference or convention over the weekend, and they debuted a teaser for the Star Wars movie coming out this December, which we now know is called The Rise of Skywalker, which I have weird feelings about. Um, <laughs> Joanna, you said not only that you watched this teaser and had thoughts on it, but you have a theory. Should we talk about the theory? I love a theory. Um, yeah, so I had a knee-jerk, angry reaction to the title, uh, which Hillary may or may not uh, recall from Slack. I think I just typed, like, hate in all caps. <laughs> that um, sounds, that because- sounds right. Yeah, I think I maybe responded with lame in all caps and several <laughs> exclamation points. Because my my initial fear was that this was some sort of placation to the the fanboys who didn't like The Last Jedi, which was Ryan Johnson's film that came out as the second installment in this trilogy. And uh, I, I was watching that celebration panel on tenterhooks, just like looking for any possible slight I might be able to see that they threw at The Last Jedi, because I feel very strongly that... Lucasfilm should stand behind that film. I think it's a great film. I think the people who were such jerks about it online are a very vocal minority and that, in fact, like a lot of people really love that film. I think it will, history will remember it fondly. Anyway, so they did a pretty good job not throwing it under the bus. And JJ did say at one point, like, you know, Ryan Johnson gave me so many gifts, including Kelly Marie Tran, who got a huge standing ovation. And that made me emotional. Okay, let's swing back to the title. The title, I don't think it means Skywalker as a person. 
uh, my I don't have a spoiler on this. This is just a theory. You think but it means it's somebody not- who's gonna walk in the sky finally? <laughs> I mean, well, isn't no, that what Leia, Carrie Fisher did in the yeah, last movie? Leia already did that last time. No, I think it means I think Skywalker is going to be the name of a new order. Um, and so like the Jedi will end and the new order will be called Skywalker. And so then it's like the rise of this new thing, which is sort of the thesis of the last Jedi is just sort of like the Jedi order needs to end. Let's make something new. And like, if they call that new thing, Skywalker, you know, as a fun thing. So as long as the word Skywalker does not refer to like Luke or Ben Solo, who has Skywalker blood in him or Ray being somehow secretly a Skywalker, then I am fine with that title. That's my, it's my maybe too nerdy take for little Goldman. I think also Ray is going to announce the, the unveiling of Skywalker plus <laughs> right. her, yeah, her, right. her new, uh, streaming. Yeah. Yeah, they'll collect your credit card at the door when you leave the movie theater. I like that theory also because there's kind of a, a meta dimension to like, like Walt Disney was an actual person and now Disney is an adjective and like a brand and like for Skywalker to have that same trajectory seems kind of poetic in a in a weird capitalist way. <laughs> totally. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean the same same that. thing is true of George Lucas. Like Lucas Lucas film, Lucas you know, it's like it's his own thing too. So um yeah, that's a great point. So I don't know. As long as the, the most important to me personally is the fact that my friend Neil Miller has promised to shave off his beard if Ray is not, uh, you know, of some kind of special Star Wars lineage. But if she's a Skywalker, he gets to keep his beard. So my personally emotionally invested in Ray not being a Skywalker. I also just I think it's a better message. Like anyone can be a hero. This is the message we keep getting from our films in 2018 and 19, which is like what the Into the Spider Verse message was. You know, like this idea of like anyone can take up the mantle. You don't have to be a, from a special midichlorian rich bloodline sort of thing. So um, yeah, that's what I'm hoping they're doing. The teaser itself, I think looked pretty cool. We get like, you know, Ray doing some fun backflip stuff. We get some fun, like zippy looking adventure with Oscar Isaac wearing a lot of scarves. Who doesn't want that? And C-3PO um, really freaked out in the middle of a battle, which I was excited about. Delightful, and then we get you know their their Leia plan, which is to use Carrie Fisher footage from The Force Awakens, which is J.J. Abrams' first Star Wars film, and so you see that they're going to like digitally alter it slightly in terms of giving her different hair or different costume, you know, to make it look like she belongs in this film. But like the face, the face performance will be Carrie Fisher. Will not be some sort of Rogue One kill it with fire abomination uh, CGI thing. So that's that's really comforting, I think, to to Leia fans. Joanna, what do you make of the scary Emperor Palpatine laugh in the trailer? Um, I will just say that I mean here here we get into territory where I do know some things, but I will say that um, there's a long history in Star Wars of you know, force ghosts or visions or, you know, there's just like a million different ways in which someone can come back. And so uh, we know that Ian McDermott, who plays Palpatine, is in the movie. That's been confirmed. But in what form, we don't know yet. So um, we'll see. How did you guys feel like it worked, or Hillary and Richard, how did you feel like it worked as a teaser for a movie that you do or do not want to see? Well, I mean, I was telling you guys before we started recording that um, I, I watched the trailer last night and because thinking like oh and I was away this weekend I forgot to watch it because it dropped when I was in the car on the way upstate and then halfway through the trailer I was like oh I did see this and so maybe it wasn't the most memorable trailer but you know on the rewatch like it I, I, look I'm gonna see it no matter what not just because I have to for work but because I'm a you know ch- since childhood Star Wars fan but 
I don't know. For some reason, the story is feeling sort of small to me. Like, maybe I need to rewatch Jedi, um, the last one, um, because, I don't know, I just was like, oh, right, like, there are stakes here, I guess, but I don't really sort of, they're not resonating with me for some for some reason. Yeah, I don't remember where I heard this, but I definitely saw on Twitter or in Slack or something, somebody say, like, the Star Wars story that I want to see is what the rest of the galaxy is doing while these, like, two weirdo fringe groups, the, like, rebels in the First Order are fighting it out. Because, like, there is a dimension where, like, yeah, these are two extremists and everybody else is just kind of, like, going about their daily lives. And I don't know. I think that's kind of funny. Yeah, there's not quite as much a sense of galactic war as there were in the original three. Like, everyone's involved, you know. It's like a scar skirmish. Right, right. Yeah, this all feels like, yeah, you know vague sort of descendants of two families or whatever, you know, whatever, kind of all just battling it out. Um, I think that's what Ryan Johnson was trying to do with the Canto bite sequence in The Last Jedi, which is like, I think is maybe one of the least successful sequences in that film. And it might not be because of the concept, but I know that he was trying to break the world open wide and say like, elsewhere in the galaxy, these guys aren't going to war at all. (laughs) They're just gambling (laughs) and being like fabulously dressed and stuff like that. So there is, I think there has been, and and the idea of Ryan Johnson's announced trilogy, which may or may not happen at this point because they've announced that they're sort of putting everything on pause as they regroup. And and that's really gratifying to me. That was an announcement out of Star Wars Celebration. They're like, we're going to put, or actually I think it was like a Disney shareholders meeting, but they were going to put a lot of Star Wars plans on, on hold as they sort of, you know, make sure they're doing it more intentionally. And my reaction walking out of Solo, which I didn't hate, but just thought was like unnecessary, was like, I was talking, I think I was talking to Meredith Warner and Jermaine Lessier and a couple people. And I was like, I was like, make Star Wars rare again, was what I said. I was like, give us a Star Wars like every other year or every two years or something like, like don't give us one every year or in the case of every Solo. Every six months. It, yeah. In the case of Solo, it was just a few months after. And so just like, let the, let us like rest and build up our anticipation again and hit us again. I mean, I know that we're going to get all these like Disney plus Star Wars, um, shows, but uh, like The Mandalorian starring Pedro Pascal. But in terms of like our big movies, I would love to see them just slowly parceled out and then we can all like go at Christmas time and get excited and it's really fun. But yeah, but I think Ryan Johnson's original trilogy plan and who knows what's going to happen to it is uh, to show us that world, that wider world that has nothing to do with the Skywalkers. Um, Because he's like, you know, he's the guy who came up with Porks. He just wants to like come up with weird stuff that's in the galaxy and entertain us with it. And I'm all for that. Yeah, I would watch an entire show where it's just a bunch of weirdo alien puppets like palling around. Yeah, turtle nuns and porgs. Just bring them back. It's just blue milk. The whole show is just 30 (laughs) minutes of blue milk. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. 
Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Ferrian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. Well, as I mentioned uh, before, uh, Star Wars has a connection to our big topic because it's the 20th anniversary coming up of The Phantom Menace, which kind of kicked off the modern era of Star Wars that we have. And it's the 20th anniversary of a lot of stuff. Uh, as with every year, there's always anniversaries to celebrate, but 1999 does kind of loom large in the film imagination. And Hillary, you're actually the person who gave me the idea to kind of make this a segment because there's been so many retrospectives, but also a lot of ideas of being like, wait, are we celebrating the 20th anniversary of insert movie here? Um, what do you feel like you've been witnessing as people kind of relitigate all of these movies for 1999. I mean, it's really it is a fun year to dissect. There's a lot of a lot of really interesting stuff happening. A lot of really important movies coming out. A lot of less important but beloved movies coming out. And uh, yeah, as you said, uh, people are also kind of starting to litigate like what deserves our nostalgia dollars and uh, attention and what doesn't. Um, which uh, is a debate that I think hinges on some pretty old-fashioned ideas about what culture matters and what doesn't. Uh, and that that conversation, I think, most recently kicked off when there was a rash of 10 Things I Hate About You retrospectives, um, which was a really big teen movie if you were uh, the teenager or a teenager in 1999 and or in the years after. Um, but yeah, there were a lot of people who don't think of that movie as something deserving of a lot of attention. And uh, I think that that just kind of speaks to the kind of stuff that, yeah, I mean, because it's aimed at teenagers, because it's a romance, because it's aimed at women, um, all of those kind of old barriers about what sorts of culture gets the label important and what doesn't. Um, And in 1999, just because there's so many movies that we remember and so many original movies, which is maybe the most interesting part, there's not a lot of – there's a lot of – stuff that isn't based on existing IP. Um, And if you look at the top 10 list from 1999 versus, you know, now or in more recent years, that's like really, really stark. Um, And that's maybe one of the other reasons why this year is so interesting to talk about, just because there's all of these singular things that either started that year or came out that year. So yeah, I don't know. I have I have a lot of opinions about a lot of movies in 1999. <laughs> well, it's funny, like you know, when when we brought up this topic as a as a you know as an idea for for the podcast, I was like, well, I mean, like you know, the reason that 1999 feels significant to me is because I was 15, 16 years old. I was really engaged with Entertainment Weekly and going to movies, and 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 I was you know I was a teenager, and you think that your sort of teen era is the era for all time. You know, yeah, we there see is that, definitely that. You know, dimension to yeah. it too. But then I actually looked at the list and I was like, holy shit, all of these movies came out in 1999. <laughs> I mean, if you look at the box office mojo list of the top grossing movies for that year, it's just insane. So like there was something happening and I almost wonder, this is probably not actually how the movie making business works, but like if like this was, there was a sort of subconscious rush to get in under the wire of the, of the 20th century, you know, like, like because the idea of having to compete with hundred years of movies coming forward and you're you're at the beginning of something maybe better to sort of like punctuate the end of it you know with your sort of statement whether it be you know sci-fi action movie to beat all sci-fi action movies in the form of the matrix or the sixth sense or a teen comedy or whatever you know um i just think that maybe that sort of y2k anxiety caused people to sort of i don't know create singular things right at the right at the end of, the, of things 
Well, it's interesting that you bring up anxiety because I think of 1999 movies and I, I think American Beauty, particularly in this way, but some other ones is representing this pre 9-11 era of like movies about like suburban ennui or like how it feels to like be American and have everything but not have what you want. Like that just really went dramatically out of style um, not very long after this. So it, it feels like more of a time capsule than even something from a couple years earlier because, because how close it comes to that, you know, turn of the millennium uh, angst that comes up. Yeah, it's like a period right before we had real stuff to worry about. Yeah, basically. <laughs> and so your biggest problem is, oh, no, I'm married to Annette Benning and like I have a boring job. <laughs> she likes her beautiful couches too much. <laughs> Hillary, you brought up the teen movies, which I think is something that I miss really desperately from this period. Like 10 Things I Hate About You had its anniversary. American Pie anniversary is coming up. This is the era of She's All That. Um, and Drop with, Dead Gorgeous. And Drop Dead mm-hmm. Gorgeous. Which and I f- Dick, I, which is my favorite, uh, like least remembered teen movie from this era. With, like, the best cast with Michelle Williams and Kirsten Dunst, like, kind of, like, making their way to their peak. I mean, teen movies almost feel like they don't exist anymore. Like, we talked about Love, Simon last year, but it's a lot of Netflix and shows and stuff like this. Did we, are, are we just indulging in our own nostalgia from having been teenagers at this time? Was there, was there something better about this time when we could um, process teenagerdom this way? I think there legitimately is a boom in teen movies around this time that in a way that and yeah, like you said, I don't think they totally exist in that way anymore if only because teenagers don't care about movies now or at least they care a lot less. They don't care about small movies anymore. Well, I think, you know, in in the late 90s, this was also happening concurrently with Bubblegum Pop and NSYNC and Britney Spears and Backstreet Boys. Uh, that, that was just, you know, everything that sort of Scream started. And the, MTV is And MTV still started, you know, and, and there, there was a great front line about, um, called Merchants of Cool, about how around that time marketers saw that teenagers or a certain demographic s- selection of teenagers had spending power and all of a sudden teenagers were really being directly marketed to in a way that they hadn't before. And so, of course, then culture for them is going to arise. But I think, I don't know, 20 years out, I think we're having another one. It's just coming in a different form, whether it's a beloved Netflix movie mm-hmm. um, to All the Boys I Loved Before or... or um, Riverdale. Or The Kissing Booth, which is a really problematic movie. So is 10 Things I Hate About You also. <laughs> um, but um, but also in, in we have teen weepies like Five Feet Apart and um, all the other everything, everything where, you know, but that's like dying teenagers or sick teenagers. It's not like, let's go to a big house party. Although we have that coming up in Booksmart. So I don't know. I think like if trends repeat themselves every 20 years, I think we actually are seeing a slight revisiting uh, of of that genre. And that very well could be because there are people in their 30s now who are watching these teen movies when they were teenagers and they want to recreate that. I mean, it seems like with Booksmart, at least that's part of it. I mean, there ha- that has to be the reason why, like, a trendy young guy now looks like kids I went to soccer camp with in 1994, you know? like tra- trends <laughs> Oh, like just the mushroom haircut? Rec- yeah, and, like, umbro shorts. It's like these things come back, and, and maybe the teen movie is, 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 is the next kind of thing on, on cresting on the wave. Um, I did also, this is not about teen movies, but uh, apparently Steve Madden is bringing back those chunky loafers from oh, 1999. Cool. <laughs> Great. Oh, my God. Joanna, what's your 1999 nostalgia of choice? Like, what do you automatically go to? I don't know if it's what I automatically... Well, so I was a senior in high school in 1999, so that it is, like, a very rosy time for me. Like, we were just all... All your friends, so many of them, watching movies together almost every weekend. Like, that's what we would do. So, um, I don't know. I, In terms of looking back and sort of re-examining something through a, a new lens, my favorite version of that is there was this great piece on Vox by a writer named Emily Sandalwood about um, the Matrix and re-examining the Matrix as 
a film about trans identity. It was, it like blew my mind, this article. And like, it's not the first one to sort of re-examine the matrix in the framework of, you know, the Wachowski siblings and, and their own gender identity. But it, it was just like a fascinating thing to me because the matrix became this like launching point for this whole MRA movement and became the symbol of this big thing. And then if you look at it through this other lens, it's this very interesting examination of, of gender identity, especially given that news that broke um, a little while ago that like, you know, Sandra Bullock was considered for the Neo role and stuff like that. It's just, it's fascinating. And what a different world we might be living in if Neo were, you know, played by a woman or if the gender identity stuff were even more explicit. And I'm not saying that the Wachowski siblings, intentionally tried to make a film about trans identity. I just think maybe if this is something that is like, you know, burning a hole in your brain, it comes through in your art, whether or not you intend it to. Um, so I think that's really fascinating. And then I also like, it's just a different time in terms of, you know, my friends and I slept out in line <laughs> to watch the Phantom Menace. Uh, we cut school and watched the Phantom Menace and, um, we were massively disappointed by it. So it's like, I think one of the first times I remember a big cultural event being like such a massive disappointment. Um, or I remember the sixth sense, um, seeing it opening night or whatever. And then going back and seeing it four different times that weekend and pulling all these different people with me. Cause I was like, you can't wait. There's a spoiler and you'll, you'll know it, you know? And like that, that era does not exist. We cannot do that anymore. As soon as the sixth sense is out like that, that, ending is out on the internet, you know? So that was just like a, a very different time. So yeah, I feel, I feel nostalgic thinking about all of this stuff and, and sort of, you know, as much as I love superhero films, cause I do the fact that we, you know, we weren't yet living under the cloud of superhero domination. And so there's still all, room for all these other kind of, you know, the matrix kind of is a superhero movie, but, um, I don't know. It is fascinating to think about. And, um, I, uh, yeah, I'm getting, I'm getting overwhelmed with nostalgia. <laughs> Hillary, you were saying um, before we started recording, like using the Matrix and a couple of other examples that 1999 had all of these like very big male ego movies that like kind of did a lot for toxic, toxic masculinity in the intervening 20 years. Um, and the Matrix is so complicated and something I feel like no one has really ever going to be able to wrap their head around because Joanna, as you were saying, it had such a huge influence on this men's rights activist movement, but also was made by two trans women. Like it's, it's such a hard thing to understand, which I think is part of its enduring power that there really is nothing else like the Matrix. No, totally. Um, I, although I guess that the parts of the Matrix that have been appropriated by the MRA crowd are not, I mean, it's things like, you know, being red pilled, which is the same concept as kind of like going down the rabbit hole, like a concept that existed before, but is given a different name and like a different framing in this movie. Um, I mean, I do wonder though, yeah, like what they think knowing now that Lillian Lana Wachowski are Lillian Lana Wachowski I, I don't know if that's something that they just completely ignore or I think that they are able to compartmentalize that pretty uh, you know pretty stringently well at least Fight Club is still Fight Club Thank which God. is the yeah. other big yeah. male 1999 movie yeah I think you know another interesting thing about The Matrix um, and another 1990 film uh, 1999 film the, the Blair Witch Project um, which were both on the list of 25 most influential film scenes of the last 25 years ish that Cam Collins and I did um, back in January is you know The Matrix changed action movies forever and you know just as the just as the new millennium was starting depending on who you ask about calendar dates and all that um it really deftly pinpointed 
you know, the internet as it was then and what we thought it might become, all this kind of connectivity and virtual reality of a sort. And then kind of as an interesting companion piece to that, The Blair Witch Project was the first movie really solely marketed on the internet, you know, that really kind of tapped into early virality um, as a way to get people talking and in seeds. And, you know, because before then, you know, everyone makes jokes about like the Space Jam website, which is still up or whatever, or the Stargate website, which was, I think, the first movie website, you know, a few years prior. Um, but just in those few few years, you know, the internet's sort of metabolism being what it is, its growth being what it is, um, it, it was such a different thing already, you know, um, in 1999 than it was in 1995. So that, that the Blair Witch and the Matrix happened at the same time or the same year anyway, roughly commenting on the internet in, in different ways. I think those movies seem both like time capsules, but also really prescient in kind of an eerie way. Yeah, and uh, Joanna, it's funny what you said about The Phantom Menace being one of your first experiences of like a big cultural thing being a giant disappointment because I feel like Blair Witch was that for me and my friends that we had heard that this was the scariest movie ever made, that it was just going to like <laughs> petrify us all. Um, and none of us were old enough to see it in the theater, so we rented it when we could eventually um, and watched it to sleepover. And I'm very distinctly watching it and like, after four hours of them wandering around the woods being like, is this it? This is, this is what everybody was <laughs> Well, that's out the thing about? is that was a movie that you really had to catch at the moment. You know, like I was old enough to see it in the theater and as jaded and sort of, you know, whatever chip on my shoulder as I kind of pretended I was at that age, I also could really suspend disbelief for a long time. And so, you know, you watch that movie and you knew it wasn't real. But, like, in the theater with everyone, like, hepped up and, like, you know, all the buzz. I think it was at Sundance. All the buzz about the movie, all the internet stuff. You were just like, yeah, yeah, it's real footage. It's real footage. And you could kind of sustain that conviction long enough for the movie to really work on you. Like, I loved it when I first saw it. But I think, yeah, waiting a bit and then watching it at home, that movie is not going to have the same impact and never could. Yeah, it needed the dimension of the, the like, uh, communal experience, yeah. I think. Can I share um, my Blair Witch Project story that might get cut out of this podcast? Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, man, do it. This is all about the deep dives. I, I will first describe to you what I ate because it's important, which is my friend. My friend. <laughs> oh, no, I'm friend, really worried about how this story ends. <laughs> my friend made me like a pesto burger, and I definitely had a Sobe that was like a Sobe white. Uh, like I shudder, <laughs> I shudder to think of like any of these things now. As um, we went to go see the Blair Witch Project, it's shaky handheld. Uh, Cam and I felt extremely sick through the whole thing and then we left the movie and we went to like go get you know a soda or whatever at the Chili's across the street of the mall and I definitely like went to the bathroom and threw up in the Chili's uh, at the North Cape Mall <laughs> uh, because of the Blair Witch Project and I came out my friend's like well like should we still hang out I was like nope this is when you take me home because oh. we are done to switch courses from throwing up in the Chili's bathroom to something a little more highbrow. But why, Richard? Yeah, well, because I don't have my own story and I'm jealous. Um, I mean, I have other worse stories. But uh, the 1999 was also a fascinating year for like the kind of, you know, I was looking at the, you know, um, Wikipedia does like 1999 in film and you can, and they usually break it up by like October through December is the last, you know, kind of block of movies. And boy, was I having like Entertainment Weekly fall movie preview flashbacks because like every one of those movies I was like so amped to see. But like you have being John Malkovich, talented Mr. Ripley. Um, the Virgin Suicides did not open in the U.S. in 1999, but it had been at Cannes. You had, it was just like such an interesting year. Uh, you had Magnolia. Like, like it was a really exciting creative pivot point too, I think, for the art house. Like 
obviously hindsight, it's not a great thing, but like the rise of Miramax and was really kind of in full swing at that point. And, you know, they were fresh off of Shakespeare in Love winning. And uh, and here was uh, Talented Mr. Ripley, which I think is still one of my favorite movies ever made. Um, actually, there was a kind of, kind of fun like film Twitter little uh, recent appreciation of that uh, like a couple weeks ago. So I remember uh, being a teenager who, you know, fancied himself. Well, I liked, I, you know, I got in line like I bought tickets for Phantom Menace very early, so I was that too. But I also thought of myself as a kind of like, in, you know, art house indie connoisseur. Um, it was a really, really enriching year for that as well, which, you know, the, the, that mixing of quote unquote high and low in such a thorough way, while also you have a big populist hit like The Sixth Sense that gets into the Oscar race, that's rare. I mean, that does not happen every year, certainly. For me, I always think of it as my transition. Like I said, it was my senior year of high school, but then it was also my freshman year of college. So it's like my transition from like going to see all these like mainstream fun blockbusters with my my high school friends. And then I got to college and I got to be like so serious and see all these like art house films. And um, it was just, yeah, I, I think of that as a huge pivot point. And I'm glad that that year contained all of those things for me. Oh, well, I was 11. So my favorite movie actually at the time was probably Toy Story 2. <laughs> I mean, it holds up. It That's does. Not a bad choice. No, I uh, I remain like the only person still beating the drum that Toy Story Two is better than Toy Story Three. Everybody just forgot all about Toy Story Two once Three came out, but they're the same movie, and Three is worse. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson, and I'm Hillary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor. Let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs. Uh, Richard, you were talking about the, the Oscars as a time capsule of this year, and I was reading uh, the annual piece that you do where you recap the Oscars from 20 years previously, and this was the 1999 Oscars, which were for films from 1998, so this is the Roberto Benigni year, the Shakespeare in Love year, um, but it was really fascinating about just looking about like what was happening at the time and what was okay, like Harvey Weinstein giving a Best Picture speech. Um, when you when you did that kind of time capsule, what were you struck by that like was happening in 1999 that either feels totally unbelievable now or kind of got us where we are? I was struck by the fact that I like vividly remembered most of that show and it was 20 <laughs> years ago. Like that to me is horrifying. But I think it's interesting that even then, you know, like it, we were, it was five years post Pulp Fiction, four or five years, depending on, you know, and you know, the way that independent film was spoken about, there was still this kind of jokey, like, Oh, look at the uh, little tiny movies trying to get in on the Hollywood game. Now you don't, we don't have jokes like that at the Oscars. I mean, because it's just assumed like, you know, we now talk about how no one has seen anything that's been nominated for Oscars. Um, so that the Oscars still felt, I mean, more populist in a way. Um, you know, when you have a movie like Shakespeare in Love being the kind of little underdog, that was a very successful movie from a produced by a very powerful person that was yeah going up against a Spielberg movie about World War II at the height of kind of baby boomer you know hegemony. But uh, you know, so these were two kind of titans du duking it out. It wasn't like you know tiny moonlight versus whatever. You know, it's 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 a different. It, it was a very different landscape, but all the more and all the more horrifying for the fact that I like. Definitely watch that whole show, like start to finish, as a teenager. The image of uh, Ed Harris and Amy Madigan sitting there with their arms crossed, like, is yes. burned into my brain. I will yeah. never forget so that. Good. So good, especially because I didn't understand Huack or any, like, any of the McCarthy stuff at all at the time. 
At the 2000 Oscars, the ones that honored movies from 1999, it is striking to look at how many blockbusters are also in the Best Picture race. There's American Beauty, there's The Green Mile, there's The Sixth Sense, and I guess then The Insider and the Cider House Rules, yeah. which are not quite as... Well, and, and not to but like, still. you know, the movie still made a lot of money and it was again for mirroring ranks, but like Talented Mr. Ripley couldn't get a Best Picture nomination. Matt Damon didn't get a Best Actor nomination, like, like because it was maybe too small, even though it made like $80 million. Like, it was a very different time. And I don't think it was necessarily because, I mean, it wasn't like movies were better. Or, it, it was just that, yeah, I mean, I guess people were still going to movies in droves and so things just felt bigger. Um, I mean, can you imagine a movie like American Beauty now making the money it did? It's it's crazy to think. I saw that twice in the theater. Oh, just be- because it's like a pretty small story or because of like the specific content of American Beauty, which is definitely... I, I, I think it's specific content, but also the idea that like that would be the movie that people had to go out and watch. You know, mm-hmm. it didn't really have movie stars in it. Annette Bening and Kevin Spacey were respected actors. He had won an Oscar before and was about to win another one for that. You know, Benning had been nominated. Like, she, you know, th- these people were known, but they weren't, you know, they weren't, neither of them, were, they weren't Tom Hanks, they weren't Meryl Streep. Um, and it made money based on a, a sort of interesting aesthetic. And I guess what felt at the time like a sort of zeitgeisty commentary on a very particular, you know, narrow swath of American life. The other 1990 anniversary that I think informs a lot of this is that The Sopranos premiered in January of 1999, which, uh, you know, kind of obviously kicks off this long process of television supplanting all of these uh, adult-focused stories that we're talking about. So, like, American Beauty now would be a TV show 100%, um, which is part of how the Oscars have changed so much, too. Yeah, I mean, uh, The Cider House Rules would be an HBO movie, and I would watch the hell out of it again. <laughs> oh, again. yeah. It would have such a good score. I would yeah, enjoy yeah, yeah. it so I remember much. very vividly watching those Oscars, and because I was young and stupid, I didn't understand that the title of the movie was, like, The Rules of the Cider House. I thought it was, like, The Cider House Rules. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, why shouldn't it be? I think that, that would be an interesting movie, too, good just night, about how great Princess the Cider House Maine, is. Good night, you of Maine, you bros of New England. <laughs> So these aren't, you, neither of these are movies from 1999, but I've been thinking about like how things hold up over time. Last week, there was the Daily Beast article that was revisiting Heathers from a, uh, a young man who was basically like, this movie is complicated and problematic and would not work today. Um, and then there was this clip from Micho Black that went viral for a while of, uh, oh of this famous God. scene of Brad Pitt getting hit by a car. That movie's from so 1998. Um, but so we're all in a position where we remember 1999, we know these movies, we like understood them the first time around. How much of this stuff do you guys think is going to hold up or in 10 years are we going to get someone writing a post being like guys you won't believe this but the sixth sense is problematic for you know these 10 reasons oh sorry i said the daily beast before i meant the rap sorry well i think there's like no way to necessarily tell i mean i did mention 10 things i hate about you for example like i rewatched that movie recently because it had been a long time since i seen it and i think i was feeling some like heath ledger pangs or something i remember it being and like pretty progressive what's the it's it's the Joseph Gordon-Levitt character is, like, fucked. Like, he's a total nice guy. And he yells oh. at Larissa Olenek at one point for not kissing him. And he's like, I've been so nice to you. And you're supposed to root for that kid. Ooh. He's supposed to be the sweet sort of, like, you know, there's just a lot of, like, like a lot of, like, guys kind of backroom dealing to kind of, like, you know, move women on the chessboard. It, it's, it's, it's still entertaining and really well performed. But, like... I, I was I was actually startled because I I remember as a teenager being like that's the cool one that's the that's the hip smart sharp one and she's all that or whatever is kind of creaky um, I haven't watched she's all that again because I for various reasons I, I just <laughs> can't deal with that much Freddie Prince Jr. but um, 
you know, I don't know. It's just interesting. So I don't know, you know, how much 20 years after this, like when those movies are 40 years old. I mean, it's the kind of thing where unfortunately we have to, unless it's an absolute classic. I mean, my my favorite example of this is that um, Marsha Mason, the actress who was married to Neil Simon for a time, she was nominated for three Oscars in the 70s. And like, does anyone who isn't like a diehard film fan really know who that is anymore, you know? And right. um, I mean, unless you're a fan of The Middle, which I was, I watched every episode of that show and she played Patricia Heaton's mom. But, um, you know what I mean? Like, so there are, unfortunately, there's things will just go by the wayside. I don't know how much of it is going to go away because it's been sort of audited and be fa- and found to be a problem or if it's just going to be like in the churn of content, you know, movies that I cherish because they were what was on the screen looming in front of me when I was 16, 15, you know, 15, 16 years old. Uh, they just might go away. So, you know, in 20 years' time, that Meet Joe Black gift might make absolutely no sense to people. I mean, it makes very it little already sense does. now. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that with, I mean, the funny thing about Meet Joe Black is, like, that one minute span is, I think, all anybody remembers of that movie. Like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there's, that movie is what, 12 hours long? It's and very, very long. <laughs> there's just the 60 seconds of Brad Pitt and Clara Forlani walking away from each other, and then he gets hit by a car. And, like, I mean, that's, that's like, kind of made for the internet. Like, I feel like that the only reason that anybody is talking about that movie is because it has one scene that makes a really good, like, Twitter clip. Yeah, yeah. I was watching that clip uh, yesterday because I missed the, like, like, I kind of vaguely saw that people were talking about Meet Joe Black on the internet, and I couldn't figure out why, so I was just sort of like, okay, that's interesting. And then it surfed up up in my, like, uh, timeline. I was like, oh, this is why. And someone was like, this is the most hilarious, like, it's the craziest one minute of a movie I've ever seen, right? And so I watched it, and I was like, oh, this is hilarious. This is so funny. And then, then, like, halfway through, I was like, oh, wait, I know that this ends with him getting hit by a car. That's that's even better. Um, Yeah, that movie was bananas, uh, you know. Even when it and it's just sort of like, um, I don't know, amazing to consider the era of Pitt and Claire Forlani, by the way. Um, so yeah, well, to go back to you know Richard looking at at Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Ten Things I Hate About You, um, a character he would kind of play again but differently in in Five Hundred Days of Summer is. Um, this idea of American beauty, when I watched American beauty, you watch it and like, let's try if we can to surgically remove the Kevin Spacey of it all, which is sort of impossible, but let's try. Even the character of Lester, you're sort of like, you're with him. And now I watch it and I'm just so disgusted. You know what I mean? It's so really it's, hard for me to imagine watching American beauty now. And that like, I loved that. Movie yeah. When it came oh yeah. Out. Like, I, 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 I was so, so, so deep. I dragged friends oh, yeah. from school cause I saw it with my parents first. And I, and I, I like, a week later, I was like, "You have to see this movie. It's the most profound, like, like cinematic experience." Yeah. It still yeah. like looks great, and the set, that that score by Thomas Newman is wonderful. But yeah, mm-hmm. Joanna, like, like that. It's not just the Kevin Spacey, you know, what we know now. It's it's just the dynamic about who he's supposed to be and how we're supposed to root for him and what he wants and how he wants it. It's just like. It's super alarming that, like, just 20 years ago, the Academy was like, here's a wonderful representation of, like, American psychology. I mean, maybe it actually is depressingly, but the sort of celebration of it and the centering of it was um, is, is looks really weird. Well, now. yeah, there's, like, a weird, like, male trilogy between, like, that and Office Space and Fight Club where, like, the thread running through all of them is, like, we know you, like, man, like, wish that you could be a man, but you've been turned into something else by consumerism and by, like, this soft, femini- fo- soft feminized society. Um, but we know that, like, within you, there's, like, a warrior, there's a fighter, there's, like, a transgressive guy who will sleep with a teenager, and, like, that's very meaningful. And be murdered by a gay man. Yes. Whew. Yike. 
so yeah, American Beauty feels like a really obvious one of something that like, you know, is already we're not looking fondly upon. And when I think about like what really will hold up, like what will be the Stone Cold classic from 1999 in this year that so many great things came out, like The Matrix feels like the only obvious one where like that will always be there. That will always be relevant. And even if it's like not going to be what people look like and is going to need some explaining in 50 years, like it's going to be revisited. What else feels like it's going to just like stand up forever, at least as far as we can tell? The talented Mr. Ripley is like, you know, it's when Richard's like, it couldn't even get a best picture. It's like, it's crazy because people who love film, like love that film. Um, I think that's true. Uh, maybe I live in a like cave where everyone just loves the talented Mr. Ripley, but it's not like, it's not a mainstream thing. But like when you, I think about this all the time when you're in the middle of a year and you think like 30 years from now of the kid like you, like me when I was a kid who wanted to know what the important movies were of decades ago. And so goes and digs through with their limited understanding of the context of the year and stuff like that and tries to pick out like what was important. And you look up what won the Oscar that year and I've let, you're like, why have I never heard of any of these movies? But mm-hmm. people talk about this is the movie I need to see. And that's like, I feel like the talented Mr. Ripley, you know, because you know, if kids, if there are kids who care about that and, and, and this is my, I sound so old and not just like want to watch like, you know, people play video games on YouTube or whatever, like then, then if they're following people on film Twitter, then they will occasionally see people on film Twitter talk about the talent of Mr. Ripley and how it's like a perfect film. And so that to me feels like, um, you know, a really important indication. And we should also say like, as for white people, like looking at this year and, and the importance and the highs and the lows, it's also like an incredibly white year, you know, yes. like American beauty is like white on we. Uh, <laughs> so I just, um, as yeah, with so, most yeah. years in Hollywood history until very yeah. recently, extremely right, exactly. Um, and the talented Mr. Ripley made $81 million. Yeah, it I, well. It's a much bigger hit than I thought yeah. it was. Yeah, same. Um, I mean, I think we're all sort of sleeping on the bone collector, which clearly will, <laughs> or Deuce Bigelow, Male Gigolo. Well, I was, going um, to, I was going to bring up Austin Powers too, The Spy Who Shagged oh, Me, of course, which right. was another, although I do have a real answer to this question, um, which is a movie that we haven't talked about yet, Election. Um, oh, yeah. Yes. Which is yeah. so prescient, so like relevant, so like, I mean, like the 2016 election, presidential election was that movie, mm-hmm. but writ large and like showed how terrible, except that the Chris Klein character was Donald Trump. Yeah. And yeah. like, I, I think that there's, I mean, that movie is just so smart and was so ahead of its time. And I think like not really appreciated when it came out. Um, and I think that deserves a lot of attention now. Absolutely. And I think also in a small way, um, Matthew Broderick sort of immolating a little bit of his rep as a sweet kind of nice guy to play this real creep. You know, I think that 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 was like an example of what's since happened is, you know, big name actors, you know, taking some risks in an independent film, trusting an auteur to kind of guide them in the right direction. And now that's kind of, you know, what people do now, you know, it, it, I feel like it, it's, it, there are some movie stars still who operate on a very safe level, but I think, you know, the ones who really get the sort of respect and the gravity, like, yeah, they're the ones who kind of take those risks the way that Broderick did in that movie. And that character kind of attacks the nice guy tropes that mm-hmm. other movies like 10 Things I Hate About You uh, are still like playing into. Um, and in a really interesting way, like shows the darkness and like the emptiness behind his like good teacher persona. Yeah. Fully. Someone recently surfaced for me an article written November 7th, 2016 in the New York Times called The Triumph of Tracy Flick, question mark. It is it's heartbreaking. Oh, oh no. Um, <laughs> speaking of heartbreaking, or at least, I don't know, heartwarming, poignant, um, a smaller movie from 1999 that I wish had a bit of a, a higher profile than it does 
these days is, a, is October Sky, a very sweet yes. movie um, based on a true story about kids in a coal, poor coal mining town just kind of being inspired by Sputnik and like, you know, launching rockets. It's an early Jake Gyllenhaal performance. There's a beautiful Laura Dern performance in it. It's just a very, very sweet, um, I guess you could call it family movie uh, of the variety that will pop up now and then, you know, in the form of Pete's Dragon or something. But like it's it's rare now because I feel like so much, you know, family programming is either on television, on YouTube, now has a more of a faith-based kind of thing, which I guess October Sky maybe does a little bit. But um, anyway, that's a, that's a great movie that uh, that um, kind of came and went in 1999, but I think should deserve more. Yeah. That's the movie that I would have given Chris Cooper the Oscar for versus the Orchard, Orchard Thief, mm-hmm. <laughs> Orchid Thief, which is, yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, that, that movie is so good. And it's, um, yeah, it's, it's these like quiet films that I used to like, I don't know, watch sometimes on TNT. They would just like show up and it's not splashy. It, yeah, this is, I think, what you were getting at earlier, Katie, in terms of like, and this is well, this is no revelation, but like what we have now is either like the big blockbuster stuff in the theaters or the super tiny indie or tour stuff in the theaters, and then the like that that main like that middle ground movie is on TV, and so October Sky would be like a TV series, um, or a limited series or whatever. Yeah. And and I liked it. I like it as a movie, a movie that you go see in a theater, um, even if I saw it at home for the first time. So yeah. Yeah, the uh, the movie that I feel like needs to get resurfaced, and Hillary, I know we've talked about this, is Dropped at Gorgeous, which I believe is going to be on Hulu soon. Um, it it's is going to have a new life in streaming. Um, it, and I haven't watched it in a while. I assume it holds up pretty well. It's got like some kind of like good like sly feminist messages in there, and the story of a small town beauty pageant. Uh, and it's also got Allison Janney giving the precursor to her Oscar winning performance from Itanya, playing this kind of like terrifying, funny white trash woman. Um, I I'm really excited for that one to kind of find a new life on stream because I feel like there's a lot of people who have never heard of it and haven't seen it. Yeah, I mean, I think if people watch it, they're going to be like, wait, she did the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Joanna, do you have a, a 1999 pick that you feel like needs to stand the test of time or or deserves a revival? Well, two things. I'll say this. I'll give a serious answer or not so serious answer. Seriously, a stone-cold comedy classic that has never gone over poorly when I've shown it to someone from that year is Galaxy Quest, which is a f- great movie, a uh, Star Trek parody, right? Um, I and feel then, like that, that like came back also, like when Alan Rickman died, I think there was like a lot of nostalgia about Galaxy, yeah. Galaxy Quest yeah. specifically. Yeah, so like just a great movie. And then um, I recently, for the first time, saw Deep Blue Sea and I really regret not seeing that in the theater since I was 18 because like what a joyous schlock fest that is and I believe it's on Netflix so if you want to enjoy LL Cool J Tom Jane Saffron Burroughs uh, like all your faves in wetsuits being eaten by sharks uh, I heartily recommend Deep Blue Sea I saw that in the theater Joanna and, and did you have the time of your life? I'm forever changed. <laughs> yes. Um, it is interesting, I'm now just looking at this list, that th- this was also a year, a kind of off year for some auteurs we're still celebrating now. You know, Spike Lee had his Summer of Sam movie that kind of came and went. Um, similarly, Martin Scorsese had uh, Bringing Out the Dead, the ambulance driver drama with Nicolas Cage that did not, you know, quite quite resonate with people. I mean, you know, Oliver Stone had... Um, any, any given Sunday, which, you know, like did okay, but wasn't, you know, the huge smash. So, so you know, just as we're sort of lauding a, a sort of, you know, yesteryear, it was also, you know, followed some similar patterns and that like it was off years for some people and, you know, and, and some less than memorable stuff came out for sure. 
but also you get the rise of Alexander Payne with Election and David O. Russell with Three Kings. And I think they, they'd all had previous films, but it's kind of a good benchmark year for them. Paul Thomas yeah. Anderson has Magnolia. You're, you're kind of watching a new class coming up, even as some of these, uh, you know, you would think they'd be like, okay, they're going to surpass Scorsese, but Scorsese wasn't going away. Yeah. He's, uh, he's not going anywhere anytime soon. You also get a really early, wonderful um, Sam Rockwell performance in Galaxy Quest. Ooh. There you go. Okay, well, that about does it for this week's Little Gold Men. I've enjoyed our journey into the past and look forward to when we get to do this next year for 2000, which has even more nostalgia tied in for me. In the least. year 2000. <laughs> and, and then Richard will sing the entire episode. A lot to look forward to. In the meantime, you can find us at VanityFair.com, writing about all kinds of things, including lots of Game of Thrones coverage. Uh, you can find us all on Twitter at Little Gold Men and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich. Joanna? I'm at Joe Rothis. And Richard? At Bone Collector Fan. Mm, and Hillary. I'm at Ashley Judd in Double Jeopardy. <laughs> this episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and this week's best pitch for the Little Gold Men Disney Plus show goes to Hillary Busis. An entire show where it's just a bunch of weirdo alien puppets like palling around. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.